Okay. Let's get started. Oh, right on time. Um, Alright, so today we're going to finish off the Triumph of Love. Um, I have posted the next play for... Um, it is uh, The Country Wife, and there's also about an hour of scenes from The Country Wife. I'll let you know next Wednesday I'll send out a recording for class. However, I'm, uh, we're not going to have class on Wednesday of next week. I just have to go into for a, a minor surgery in the morning, so I won't be able to teach while doing that. Um, and so, yeah, I'll just send you out a, uh, a, a lecture so you could listen to that and be informed. Um, good. So what is the plan for today? Uh, on the syllabus, it has uh, Commedia dell'arte and opera. So what we're, we've done a lot of dell'arte. We're not going to do we're not going to do that today. Um, but I'm going to briefly talk about uh, French opera. Um, you know what was going on. It's it's a major theatrical movement. Um, major theatrical moment of the um, of the era. So you know we'll we'll take a look at that and it's important to remember uh opera as as being a part of theater and being a part of theater history and even though we're not doing an opera you know hopefully we'll have um i'm going to try and make time to just touch on it here and there because uh, it's quite influential all right so let's start though any any questions about anything coming up Okay, very good. All right, so um, let's start with, uh, you know, let's start with, okay. Let's start with French opera um, and get through that, and then we'll jump back into, into Marivaux. Okay. So let's set this up. second okay so aptly titled all right so um Opera really evolves in Italy to start, and it, it's probably kind of different from the the opera we, we come to think of today. Um, you know, there, there was uh, a little bit more of kind of like stopping for arias and things like that, but that's, that's where it started. And so in France, we see the first um, opera performed in 1645, uh, Le Finita Paza was was what it was called, uh, and that was the first uh, Italian opera performed there in Paris, um, and it was popular between the 1640s and 1660s. Um, but then later we see uh, this this is a statue of uh, Pierre Perrin. Uh, he teamed up, known as uh, Abbe Pierre, 
um, even though he was not actually in the priesthood at all, uh, he teamed up with uh, Robert uh, Combert, and they formed the Académie d'Opera in 1669. Um, and their first, the first French opera you could see there was staged uh, shortly after. Um, and so as was the case with a lot of French cultural things, it occurs in Paris. So even though we have this kind of decentralized political space, the culture itself is still centralized in Paris, and it still all requires Louis XIV's permission to do freaking anything. And so that's the case here as well, is that, you know, you need like an academy of music or dance or opera if you want these things. And if you want these things, Louis needs to let you have them. And not only does Louis need to let you have them, um, he's going to allow you the exclusive right to that form of art, right? So um, Louis the Fourteenth gives Perrin this this right, and it's twelve years. Quote: This is Louis Louis writing, or one of his his lackeys, but the voice of Louis anyway. Uh, to present and sing in public operas and musical performances in French verse similar to those of Italy. And so this is c kind of why, while French stuff is interesting, the real kind of innovations occur in other places. England is very much decentralized um, in, you know, in terms of its, its art. It's just sort of like we learned, right? You can't do it in London because of plague fears, Um and there is going to be some uh, funding from the crown in in England as well, just because they want to be able to entertain their royals. Um, actually, Henry VIII comes up with the position of uh, revels, the, the, who who's a, a person who makes sure there is like theater available for the king or queen. Um, this becomes an important position into the 19th century. Um, but outside of that, Theater in the early modern period, in Shakespeare's period, is like, you know, whoever can get the money together to build a stage, you have a theater. Or, you know, well done. Um, just don't go into London. Uh, however, in France, you need these kind of licenses to do anything. And with what happens with opera is it's the same thing. Um, in Italy, Italy is a lot more like England. Italy is also not Italy at this time. It's a collection of different kingdoms. And so you don't have a, a unified polity dictating what you're allowed to um, to do and what you're allowed not to do, what you're not allowed to do, rather. Um, instead, you have a group of small, um, somewhat constantly changing political units. And in those political units, different things are evolving, such as opera, such as the renaissance <laughs> you, know, you know light movements like this and um and so it isn't really that surprising that opera should develop in italy um and then come into france via a dictate of louis um and so perrin is is the person who gets that right he installs his opera um and uh they Perrin and Kébert staged their first performance in 1672. Um, and initially, I think this was the uh, Académie d'Opera, and then it became the Académie Royale de Musique, or the other way around. It, the, the, the point is the Académie changed names over time. Um, 
Pomon was the the name of their first the first opera. Um, it was a five act pastoral drama, so it's about shepherds wandering in the woods and whatnot. Um, and what's important to remember about opera when it's first starting in France is that it is coming on the heels of ballet and other forms of dance. Dance is very popular. Um, Louis was a uh, apparently an accomplished dancer. And so when opera came in, it included a lot of dances in there. It was sort of seen as an incorporation of dance and music, which, you know, we, we don't think of opera that way. Once you get to Mozart and kind of the, the German language operas, that is, that's over with. You know, they're, they're not known necessarily for their dancing, but they are here. And you also had really elaborate special effects um, because... Realism isn't as big an issue uh, as it was in actual theater and in, in non-musical theater. Um, and you also have the innovation of the recitative, which is the recitative is the spoken parts between arias, which aren't actually spoken. They're sort of sung. Um, they're sort of spoke sung. Uh, and, and that's developed here so that there's a, a constant line of music that's not breaking. Um, Perrin found himself in debtor's prison, and he sold his privilege, his 12-year privilege, to uh, Jean-Baptiste Lully, who is probably, until uh, Debussy in the late 19th century, the most important French composer. Um, and there he is, his old, his old Jean-Baptiste. Uh, and there's his dates, you can see there. Um, he comes to France as a chamber boy to, to a lady... Um, he becomes a proficient dancer himself, and uh, he actually uh, teaches Louis XIV as a young man, or maybe even as a, a teenager, how to dance. Um, he's made royal composer, and he kind of comes up the ranks. Right? He's like the ch head of the violin players. He's made royal composer. He's the head of all music. Uh, and he's very much... Lully is, is a political animal. And he is—he was well despised in his day, um, because he was perfectly willing to throw people under the bus, or I guess the carriage at this time, and deceive, and even possibly have people killed in order to get the next position in this kind of chain of music. And, you know, this is what happens when you have Louis, who's in charge of all performing arts. Um, he becomes a collaborator with Moliere as well. Um, and in Moliere's work, you'll see him write, for Moliere, he writes a number of songs, and eventually they have a falling out, Moliere goes to someone else, but um, when Lully is, you know, first putting compositions out there, a lot of them are done with Moliere in Moliere's plays. Okay, um, oh, there's no picture here, no. Um, he takes over for opera, as, as opera writer, writers um he brings in the first permanent dance troupe into paris uh and he starts innovating with dances as well so the the Pasacalia and chichon these are, are popular dances that um that people can dance to they're also musical forms so you will see um like in like in bach music you'll hear um uh, like a Pasacalia or a shishon, or, or a ground bass. You know, these are all the same thing. And it becomes a musical form, but it's based upon 
a dance. And so these are kind of dances that Lully was working on and he brought into, into Paris. Um, he is uniting dance and um, music together. Here's a picture from, it's an illustration of uh, Lully's opera, Triumph of Love. It's not the same Triumph of Love, um, but you could see, it's it's kind of hard to see because the, the picture was enormous, so I had to shrink it down. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of dancers on stage in this opera. Like the whole thing is populated there with dancers. Uh, and, and so it really is thought of, opera is really at this time thought of as unifying dancing and, and music together. Um, Louis, Louis also uh, caps the other houses from having more than two singers. So if you go to a Moliere play somewhere, uh, you can't have more than two people who can sing or who are singing on stage in one of those plays. This, of course, is to prevent competition, and and as a consequence of this, um, Lully is the only person who's writing opera in Paris until his death in, in the 1680s. Um, and yeah, so he's able to kind of uh, uh, control all of France, French opera anyway, for, the, for most of the remainder of the 18th century. Um, excuse me, the 17th century. Um, what happens here? And here's another. This is an illustration of um, the premiere of Alceste, which was uh, Lully's um, opera. I, I don't believe it's, it's based on anything we've read. Um, I've heard a little bit of it. I could play it for you if you'd like. But this is its, its first premiere. I give you an idea of what, what it kind of looked like. But anyway, um, it's tragic and music, and so the, the operas tend to be tragedies. They tend to only be tragedies. You have very few comic characters. France is very much into dividing off comedy from tragedy, and that's we, we talked about that in the plays. It's also true in the operas. Um, you create a musical recitative. We mentioned this before. Um, Unlike older Italian, I put Italian films, I think Italian operas is probably what I meant. His arias are interspersed with scenes along with other forms of music or dance. So, um, you know, Italian opera would have kind of a, a lot of people like coming out and singing an aria. An aria just in, in Italian means air. So it's, it's like the beautiful song. Um, and then you'd go back to the play. Here, the arias are sort of mixed in with other things. They're inside performed scenes. We see uh, other types of music being being done um, as well as, as, as I said before, dance. Um, Coloratura uh, um, sopranos aren't used. That becomes very popular much later on. That becomes kind of the standard um, uh, a type of soprano who's singing in opera much later um but he his opera involves um kind of trills in these vocal lines so these vocal lines that kind of jump up as they're singing instead of a, a steady single line um it, it's very much the vocal music is very accented in Lully opera uh, okay um, Lully's operas use a five-part string section as well as adding flutes and recorders so he starts to add in in music together the string section is dominant 
Um, you, you're not seeing an orchestra as we understand it until the 19th century. Um, and even there, you start to see, like, for example, with Beethoven. Um, Beethoven brings in the timpani. And the timpani had been in orchestras before, but Beethoven kind of integrated it. Um, so before before Beethoven, it, it's much more pared down. And it's much more string, kind of violin, violin da gamba dominated. Um, and he did that. However, with the pastorals, he begins to add in flutes and, and recorders in order to, to give those scenes a particular characteristic. Um, he has kind of music being played at the opening and at the end. Um, he His music is kind of divided into two along those lines. Uh, he has a dotted rhythm cadence, so... Um, so it resolved the, the dominant chord is a, I believe a, a sixth then he starts resolving dominant chords in that way and then has them repeat so he has a particular style and that that kind of dominant resolution I think continues um, continues on that's something that people inherited writes in double and triple meter um, and then Pascal Collet becomes his successor uh, so yeah that's some kind of opera developments there stop sharing uh, are we back yep okay so there's probably not a lot to talk about in terms of Lully's operas um, you know but it, it's important to know that this is going on at the same time and then this stuff his, his opera style is uh, different people different you know German language people and um, some English language people, even though m most of the English language people also are taking from Italy, uh, that this is getting spread out. And it's also a very, very important form of performance. The opera, you know, the, the French opera that Lully founds, or not Lully, but was founded and that he took over, it still exists today. So these are kind of important traditional models of theater. Um, good. So any questions about that? Okay, good. So let's get back into our discussion about um, the triumph of love. Uh, does anybody know where we left off last time? I think I have written here. I don't remember. Okay, I think I've written here that we talked about um, a little bit of the plot. There's this kind of royal legitimacy problem and that um, that we also know that the 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 retreat where they are that Hermocritus and Agis that they are sort of against the crown or plotting against the crown. So just just to recall again, Agis is the rightful ruler of this kingdom, um, and that uh, that the princess is the daughter of a usurper, and so she comes here to seduce him because she she saw him by chance when she was out riding and he was very attractive so she she came to seduce him um however by marrying him she's also restoring the the rightful ruler etc so let's let's take a look at that let's start up there again um and talk about this kind of idea of of love or a, you know a higher love and often in 
uh, French theater, we'd have this kind of division between Eros and um, and Agape. Does anybody know what the, those terms mean or have heard of those terms? So eros would be kind of passionate romantic love, and agape would be uh, kind of love of knowledge, or you know, it could also be thought of as brotherly love, or um, you know, kind of love of things in in a way that could not be confused with kind of sexual passion, right? Um, and so that would be that's the difference between um, eros and agape, and. In a lot of other Marivaux plays, this division is is substantial, and some of the critical literature is about this as well. Uh, how Marivaux uses these different things. Um, however, I want to talk about that kind of that kind of idea of a, a kind of a love of um, a, a love of knowledge, a kind of brotherly love, a higher love. Sometimes it's called. Sometimes. Um, agapes connected to religious love like love of god or something like that and then this kind of passionate sexual love that we see associated more with like with cupid or with um you know with that that side of the soul or that side of the personality so how do we see those models of love in this in this film Um, well, they're all very, like, over-the-top and passionate and, like, mm. kind of, it, it, like, the whole thing reminded me of, um, I'm blanking on the name now, but that last, one of the last plays that we watched, in, oh, As You Like It, mm -hmm. it was very much like that one in the sense that they did dress up as men and that all, like, the professions of love were super, like, outgoing and, like, over-the-top. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, there, there's a um, there's kind of a heightened heightened expression, right? So there's a, a very much the like you're saying the the professions of love are, are over the top. Um, they're very very excited, and, and as you like it, and we talked about this, that's kind of a problem, right? It's not a huge problem, but um, uh, our main character has to be sort of trained by Rosalind. Right, you know, uh, he he has to be kind of brought back down to earth and be able to manage his his love. Um, do we get a sort of in in as you like it? Do we get that sort of removed love of knowledge or love of something else other than a, a sexual partner or potential sexual partner? Well, I, I would think one potential character to look at would be um, uh, Jaquees, right? Jaquees, the, the the misanthrope character who really does have this kind of um, love of knowledge, right? In the end, he decides he's going to go off and spend his time with the, with the new duke who's in the woods, the duke who went off into the woods and joined the hermit 
because there might be something to, to gather there. Um, and so in, in As You Like It, we see these kind of different models of love. One is a sort of socially conscious, right? Like love of a partner, kind of sexual love is also part of society there, right? Because in part, sexual love is how you continue society, how you make children. Um, and that's shown in As You Like It as people getting married and returning to the court, right? They're going to repopulate the court and then continue to populate the court via the, this in, institution of marriage, which legitimates and and counters, that is, kind of controls and outlines how um, how Eros can operate, right? But what do we see in in this play? There's something, there's, there's almost greater stakes in Triumph of Love than in As You Like It. Right? What is, what is Eros hoping to do, so to speak? Or what can romantic love do for this society? Um, I'm not really sure this is right, but it kind of like helps them all in their own way. Like, um, for the guy who like ran the place, uh, his name was Tamakides or something. Mm -hmm. In the end, he was like sort of this super cold, like unloving man at the beginning. And then like at the end, you saw how like happy he was when he like finally like learned how to love. And then the girl, she finally figured out her project. So that was like, something good that came out of it for her mm -hmm. and then for Ajis, like he also like found out like that loving is okay and then he ended up happier than he was before so. mm -hmm. okay yeah and and we have um hermocrates and leontine the the, the brother and sister uh, ben kingsley and fiona shop they have to sort of return to their estate and they're both sort of in a position of kind of loving knowledge, right? And and um, it seems like Fiona Shaw's character has a particular project she's working on, which turns out that, you know, she discovers electricity at the end. She sort of beats Ben Franklin by about 30 years. Um, but with with Ben Kingsley's character, with, with Hermocrates, it, he really is sort of worshipping knowledge, right? I mean, this is an adoration from it. We have a lot of scenes of him kind of wandering in he has this garden with a bunch of statues of the great philosophers and he walks back and forth looking at the great philosophers and you can imagine him kind of situating himself amongst the great philosophers um, and so you do have this this retreat that is devoted to that kind of love right? that kind of love of knowledge and it specifically sees itself as in opposition to romantic love, right? Because Jesus taught um, that it's impossible for him to love women, right? Is that's that that's what he he tells uh, the princess, you know, when he meets her in the guise of uh, Fession. Um, it's impossible for me to love. I I renounce all love with women, he, which is basically, you know, he's renouncing eros. He's renouncing. Um, you know, kind of the, the the parts of society that are, are sexual and whatnot, um, but are also society, right? Because society is this inherited thing that has to be, that has to persist via childbearing. Um, now, of course, this immediately goes away 
once he realizes she's a woman, um, you know, he, he doesn't want to do that anymore. He doesn't want to wander around looking at statues of Plato when there's an attractive woman who's interested in him like 10 feet away. Um, but the society in which they're living, this kind of tucked away retreat, um, is interested in thing, you know, knowledge. They're interested in, in forms. They're interested in things above or beyond society. Um, however, the kind of romantic element that the princess, you know, the princess and uh, Corinne, her, her servant, bring into this world, um, it also brings society into this world. It also brings the needs of whatever country we could we could imagine it's France, even though they don't say that. It brings the needs of that country into this space. And what are the needs of the country? What's the problem in the country? Isn't she in, like, and I know the people already, like, love her, but isn't she trying to, like, seem, I don't know. Actually, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, the, the big problem is she's the daughter of a usurper. That's the problem. You know, is that we're, you know, think about the context in which this play is put on. You have the rightful king, Louis Fourteenth watching a play in which the the lead has her title as the you know she's she's going to inherit the crown and she has it because of a usurper and you know what we what we end up seeing with this with this movie is that there's this kind of connection between you know love and justice right? that this kind of that her romantic interest her passion for Agis is also going to restore the rightful ruler to the throne. Um, you know, it's she. You know, she refers to this. She refers to her kind of sense of justice going in. She references it a few times in the actual play, um, or, or the movie. Uh, sorry, the, the the actual movie that her sort of romantic interest in this guy is also going to be the politically correct and moral thing to do. Right? That we're, we, if they get together, if, if Ajis can stop um, being led down this garden path to, to philosophy and, and rationality and the rejection of all society, then Ajis can rectify an injustice sitting at the heart of society. And in this society... It's an absolutist one. In its society, who's ever in charge is the center of the world. Right? So right now, the princess is the center of the world, and she is not there legitimately. Her father was a, a military ruler who positioned her, you know, who, who usurped the throne and imprisoned the, the queen, the former queen, and killed the former king. Um, and so this kind of romantic passion is setting things right. It sort of falls along the lines of justice. Yeah. So does that make sense to people, that, that kind of reading of the play? 
Yeah, that does make sense. Okay. Um, you you are of course free to disagree with that, because I also think while that that's there, it's kind of not why this movie is fun. You know, we're not sitting around hoping justice is restored. You you know you want um, you know you want the the romantic couple to get together because they look like they should be you know the most attractive people in, in the in the movie, um, and so you want them to get together. But I do think there is this. I, I think it's hard to ignore the fact that there's this kind of major political plot problem that their romance will solve. Um, but anyway, let's talk about uh, our our characters, our um, Ben Kingsley and Fiona Shaw's Hermocritus and, and Leontine. Uh, what happens with them? What is their their arc of development? Um, well, they're super, like, kind of prudish at the beginning and, mm. like, very not accepting of Fosion or who they think mm-hmm. that Fosion is. Yeah. And, like, they absolutely refuse to let him stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she has to keep on going back, like, again and again to try and, like, persuade them to fall in love with her. Mm-hmm. Good. So what her initial point of going there is or her her first lie what's her first lie other than you know she's she's not actually a man um that she's in love with Hamakotis because he recognizes who she is yeah so her initial lie though is i'm going here to learn from Hamakotis right i've i'm she says she is the son of a famous playwright you know and they both apparently have the same name yeah uh, and She's come here in order to learn because she's a person of means. She has money. She doesn't need to, or she's playing a man at this point. So he, he's a person of means. He doesn't need money. And he just wants to kind of tour around France and study at the feet of different philosophers. And Hermocrates is, is that philosopher. However, Hermocrates realizes immediately she's a woman. Right. And so her cover then becomes, oh, actually, I'm here because I'm so in love with you. And um, and of course, it works almost immediately. Right. <laughs> like he's he's immediately drawn to her in that first scene, even though he's he's constantly has to kind of reject it. He has to constantly say, no, no, no. Um, and then there's the other thing with Leontine and what happens there. Leontine's the sister that Fiona Shaw plays. What is that arc of development? And we kind of mentioned it already, but just to just to recap. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't it? It was kind of like the same thing with Marquette. Like mm-hmm. she went to Leontine first to ask if she could um, convince her brother to stay, mm-hmm. and she kind of was like no, and then she tried to seduce her in order mm-hmm. to like convince her brother to let her well stay. Exactly, yeah. So the the idea she needs to stay there to slowly win over Ajis, but she can't because of the, the this couple. Um these are known as and we've we've followed this character throughout the semester. The um Al Azon, 
which is just a you know kind of the term for um a, a blocking character you know there's lovers and there's a character who gets in the way um we saw this with the braggart soldier the braggart soldier was the blocking character in that play right there's this couple who wants to get together and this soldier who's sort of uh you know this braggart who who interrupts them and prevents them from from getting together um the the couple uh, not the couple excuse me the brother and sister are both doing that role they're both the blocking characters um and so in order to kind of win them over uh she she seduces both of them in different guises uh and what is um leontine's concern what is she really interested in uh from beginning to end Um, she like wants to finish her project. Is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's. We know at the beginning that she's um, she's working on something, and Hippocrates uh, mentions a few times, you know, when when Leontine comes in after uh, after uh, Fission tries to seduce her, um, she's very excited, and Hippocrates says to her, "Oh, have you come up with the answer?" Which she hasn't. Um, but at the end of the play, at the end of the movie, she does come up with the answer. And what is what is the answer? What does she discover at the end of the play? Um, electricity. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned this before. She discovers electricity and, and how to conduct it. Right? Because he says it's both positive and negative, And then she goes, oh, you know, that, that sparks that kind of energy. And just as... Um, Agis rides up to the princess's carriage and accepts her, accepts her proposal of marriage. Um, as they're in the carriage together, we could see the lights from the electricity shining, you know, kind of flickering and shining down. And so there seems to be this kind of, um, uh, kind of dual moment of, of conception, so to speak. There's a, a reception of romantic love that's you know going on in the carriage and at the same time there's this kind of um th- this scientific innovation that's just occurring and these two kind of forms of love this kind of adoration of knowledge and this kind of romantic adoration that they're being consummated at the same time they're both kind of shining on one another and so you know in that carriage and we could see the the electricity actually uh shining um so yeah, so there's that that kind of development for them, uh, but especially for her, she she seems to be the one who has the the greatest accomplishment there. Um, good. So, what other? Um, there's another element that's kind of strange in this in this movie as well, and I was wondering what you guys thought of it, which is the um, the audience that occasionally pops up in this movie uh what did you guys think of that or why do you think that's being used oh yeah i totally forgot to ask about that i thought that was super weird and Mm -hmm. i didn't understand it at all like i was just so confused every single time that it popped up Mm -hmm. okay Well, what do people make of it? 
So we see it three times. I don't know. I feel like every time you see it, that's like when um, the two characters kind of realize that they're falling in love. Like for, for so for the first time, Leotine, when Fishion was trying to like seduce Leotine, and she was kind of like giving into it. You see the audience pop up. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's how I thought of it as they're watching you fall in love with this person, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the person... So the audience pops up three times. Um, the third time is in the curtain call, right? And the curtain call is they're, they're singing. And the curtain call is they're singing, actually, this is just a play, and everyone's wearing modern clothing, right? They're, they're no longer in the, um, the, the 18th century garb. They're now wearing modern clothing, and they're having a curtain call. Right, so it's kind of a play. The other two times we see the audience, whose eyes are we looking through? Um, Leontine's? Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, she is the one who kind of sees the audience. And I think, oh, who meant, it, it, either Tia or Christina mentioned this, that it's kind of in moments of affection, like moments where she's sort of lost in, in the moment. Um, and alone also, that she kind of sees the audience. Um, and then when everybody can see the audience, when the audience is... So, you know, we have Leontine, this character who discovers electricity, right, and is able to conduct it, who's able to see the audience. And then when everybody can see the audience, when sort of the guise is dropped, it's all modern. You know, the, the actors are now in modern clothing. They're no longer like um, Leontine and Hermocritus and... Fession and Aegis, they're now the actors who play them, right? It's now Ben Kingsley, Fiona Shaw, Mira Servino, etc. Um, so there's this, this modern presence that's hovering around this movie, literally hovering, or I guess they're not literally hovering. They're, um, they're literally there anyway. They're literally right, right on the borders of the, the action of the film. Um, and what do you make of that? What do you make of the kind of the the modernness of them? Because you could have an audience and they could also be an 18th century audience, right? This play was watched by an 18th century audience. So what about the modern clothes and the modern clothing curtain call? Okay, so let's think of it this way. Um, What is the play's... The play, it's it's a period piece. It's a play of its time, right? It's a play of 
the 1730s. Um, however, there is a modern element that the film is adding in. Because right, in 1730s, they didn't know about electricity. So in, in the original text, Leontine is not, you know, conducting currents. It's not a thing in that world. Um, what does those modern elements, what are those, uh, what are those elements, the fact that Leontine sees the audience and the audience is a modern audience, and Leontine is also responsible for for conducting electricity um what do those elements do for the material not even necessarily what they say but what do they do for for the uh, the film um do they just kind of like make it more modern i guess yeah or like take it out of like I don't know like because it's set like a pretty long time ago so I guess they're just like having little flash forwards I don't really know okay yeah I mean they're not they're I think they are like you're saying they're making it modern um I think they're maybe connecting it to the modern right I think they are are um they're making the the material itself or or highlighting this material's relationship to the to the modern um because and we talked about this on monday i think monday or it might have been might have been wednesday but we, we talked about kind of this the rise in these different ways of thinking in france um, and kind of, ra you know, the rational system, the empirical system, this kind of return to nature, these different elements of French Enlightenment. Um, and what we see here is uh, something that seems long ago and far away. You know, the, there's princesses, there's, there's people in kind of silly disguises. However, this is a play that is being written about, um, being written during this rise of enlightenment thought, you know, the kind of thought or the kind of knowledge tradition that we are living in today. And I think the director, uh, Claire Peoples, and um, the producer, her husband was uh, um, Bertolucci, the, the famous Italian director. I think the, the connection here that they're making is between the that, or the, not the connection, excuse me, the recognition that they're making is that um, this is this is modern in its outlook. That there's a kind of a, a modernity or the seeds of modernity in this this play. That there is a connection. It's not you know long ago and far away, right? That it's kind of the beginning of our own society of the of the modern day, and the problems of the play, the kind of um, negotiation between um, you know profession and romance which here is kind of uh, between rationale and romance um that that sort of negotiation is a present one and it begins in this period when this idea of you know the kind of the life of the mind or the idea that uh intellect can be the means forward or the means of improving society and i think that 
that is being highlighted as an important part of this world, not simply a part of our own world. All right. Um, so any other, any other thoughts on this play? Okay, good, good, good. So, as we move forward, I hope you enjoyed this movie. I mean, the Marivo isn't is probably um, it. It would probably make more sense to have done like Corneille or Racine than Marivo. I, I just think this movie is a lot more fun than reading another play, and it's also this was the stuff that was popular in France in the 18th century, right? These kind of works. So it's it it is a it's a fair representative of you know, French comedy, um, you know, and it's just a, a fun production. So, uh, you know, so I hope you, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I hope that it was uh, nice to kind of relax and watch a movie instead of reading through another, <laughs> another text. Um, but for next week, what we're going to do is the country wife, which I've put a, an internet, um, an internet link to, that play and there's also on the library the Yukon library there's about an, an hour version of it online so take a look at that um the country wife is um british so we're going back to england uh before we we go into i think after that we're going to germany and spending two weeks in germany um two or three weeks in germany and ending in russia so we're just traveling east from here uh so so take a look at that i'm um Hopefully it should be a lot of fun. It's it's a longer play than the ones we've read so far, so uh, spend a little time with it. But it is um, so it's known as a rake play, which means there's a kind of a lot of libertine lusts in it. It's a very different conception from um, it's a very different idea of propriety than what we saw in France. Uh, so if there's no more questions, um, I will I will see you next week. Thank you.